Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey there. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you know that we have great advertisers that support the show and keep it free for you. One of the reasons why advertisers love Smart People Podcasts is because they know we have amazing fans. So thank you, thank you, thank you, amazing fans, for helping support Smart People Podcast. Right now, we have a survey that I'd like you to take to help us learn more about you. Just go to podsurvey.com slash smart. The survey only takes five minutes. We're going to ask you some questions about yourself and what you like to buy, but it's completely anonymous. Your answers will help us find advertisers that are well-matched to you, your interests, in the show. We want to make sure that we have the most relevant ads on this podcast, so please take the time to fill out this survey. When you're finished, you can enter a monthly drawing to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Once again, that's podsurvey.com smart, podsurvey.com S-M-A-R-T. Thanks for helping us find the best advertisers so we can keep the show free. And now, on to this week's episode. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I, just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. This week we do just that with our first Nobel Prize winner. Almost 200 episodes in. I feel like that's a milestone for us to have a Nobel laureate on the on the line here. This week we are talking to Alvin E. Roth. 
Alvin is one of the world's leading experts on matching markets. He's even designed several of them, including the exchange that places medical students in residencies and the system that increases the number of kidney transplants by better matching donors to patients. But you know what my favorite part is? On his book and everywhere on the internet, he goes by Alvin E. Roth, right? A lot of people do that full name. I get to call him Al. Like, I get on the line, talk to a Nobel Prize winner in economics, and I get to call him Al. It just feels so fun. So look, I'm going to break it down plain and simple, and then Al's going to do it in a way that, I don't know, you better be paying attention. When I think of markets, I think of the fact that I have Apple stock and it's gone up 100%, or gas and the oil market. But really, we interact through markets all the time. Actually, I'm going to quote Al on this one where he says, markets are what people do. It's how we get along with each other. When you're not alone and you're interacting with other people, there's a good chance you're engaged in some kind of marketplace. Take, for example, the marriage market, right? Yeah, that's a market. I might not have known that, but when I went to college at James Madison University and it was 60% women, I knew that that was a pretty awesome market. So we're going to talk about the marriage market. We're going to talk about selling marijuana in that market, prohibition. We're going to talk about repugnant markets. It's just a fun episode. And Al is a really smart guy, obviously. He is the Craig and Susan McCaw Professor of Economics at Stanford. He's also the Gunn Professor of Economics and Business Administration Emeritus at Harvard. He works in the areas of game theory, experimental economics, and market design. And he is the author of the fantastic new book, Who Gets What and Why? The New Economics of Matchmaking and Market Design. In 2012, he won the Nobel Prize in Economic Sciences for the Theory of Stable Allocations in the Practice of Market Design. Whatever that means. I'm going to turn it over here to Al in a second. Hey guys, I've noticed a couple of you have left some reviews on iTunes recently, and I really appreciate it. You know, I love getting your feedback. Hopefully you're enjoying the show. It motivates us. And sign up for the newsletter. Send us an email. And let's grow this thing. If you can tell somebody you know who likes podcasts about our show, well, I'd like to give you a big hug. All right, here it is, Alvin E. Roth, as we discuss markets and his new book, Who Gets What and Why. Thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. And as I was mentioning to you, in uh, before we started recording, I think you might be the first Nobel Prize winner we've had after about 200 people. So congratulations on that. And thank you so much for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So of course, with that kind of introduction, although I want to spend the majority of this episode talking about, you know, your newest book, Who Gets What and Why, and really what that goes into, which is real world problems and, and uh, applying an economics theory almost to it. I want to learn more about your your Nobel Prize and how that happened. And basically, what was that? What'd you get that in? Well, I, I got the Nobel Prize. I shared it with Lloyd Shapley, a famous game theorist, a generation older than I am. Um, and we shared it for the theory and practice of market design. So uh, he had done some of the basic game theory that goes into understanding some kinds of two-sided matching markets. And he and David Gale, who was no longer living at the time uh, when we got the award. And I had 
extended this kind of theory and and started to apply it to to helping to fix markets when they're broken and design some new ones. With that in mind, I mean, a lot of people obviously have a, a pretty good grasp when they think of markets. We tend to think of things like uh, very simple, right? Supply and demand and or uh, financial markets. How would you define really markets that you use to solve real world problems? There are lots of different kinds of markets. And as you just said, often when we think of markets, we think of commodity markets. And the job of a commodity market is to find a price at which supply equals demand. And then you can use that price to deal anonymously with other people. You don't care who you're buying a ton of coal from uh, once the exactly what kind of coal you're buying has been specified. But many markets aren't like that at all. They're matching markets. They're markets in which you can't just choose what you want, even if you can afford it. You also have to be chosen. So labor markets are like that. You can't just go to work for Google. You have to be hired. And Google can't just choose who's going to work for them. They have to compete with Facebook and other companies. And that labor market doesn't work by setting the a price at which supply equals demand. That is, Google doesn't lower the wage it pays until just enough engineers want to come and work for them. They pay a pretty high wage. They're a very desirable job. Lots more people would like to work for Google than than Google wants to hire. So there are application processes and uh, interviews and hiring and courting. And the same thing is true in many markets. I teach at a at a fancy university at Stanford University. And Stanford doesn't admit it's entering class by raising tuition until supply equals demand, until just enough students want to come. It's expensive to go to Stanford, but it's cheap enough that lots of people would like to attend Stanford. And so there's there are all these other market-clearing institutions. There's an application process and uh, an admissions process. So you can't, just like you can't just work for Google, you have to be hired. You can't just attend Stanford. You have to be admitted. And just as Google can't just choose who works for it. Stanford can't just choose its students. We have to compete with, with Harvard and with other universities. So these are matching markets, and, and they have a lot more going on. They're not anonymous. There's, there's nothing as personal as a job offer. This idea of matching markets, can we look at, or, or is there any damage done if we tend to look at so many things as a market force? Do you ever feel maybe it takes a little of the the humanism out of it, if if you will. You know what I'm saying? Like when I think of, I've never thought of these things in terms of a market. And I wonder what that shift is. And if it's just trying to apply economic theory to something that maybe might not need it. Oh, I, I think that uh, how people get jobs is, is very central. Definitely, to yeah. Uh, but it's not a commodity market. So when you say, does it, does it take some of the personal out of it? I think you're thinking of, of commodity markets. Mm-hmm. When you buy 100 shares of AT&T on the New York Stock Exchange, that's very impersonal. You don't care who you're buying it from. You don't have to know who you're buying it from. You don't worry whether they've taken good care of those shares while they had them. They don't worry whether you're going to take good care of the shares. It's an anonymous arm's length transaction where you don't know your counterparty. You just care about the price. A job market is very different. You, you very much care who works for you and who you work for. Though, you know that's why there's all that interviewing and applying that goes on and getting to know each other. So a labor market is very much a market, but uh, but it's not anonymous. It's very very personal. Um, 
And in the same way, when I start speaking of matching markets, I am willing to think about a much broader variety of things of markets than, than maybe you're used to. We speak of the marriage market, and it's, of course, a, a matching market. You can't just choose your spouse. You also have to be chosen. When, when you study it as a market, you see all sorts of market-like phenomena. You know, market, marketplaces have to be thick. They have to deal with congestion. They have to make it safe to participate. And so you can see marriage changing over time as the, as the thick markets for, for marriage changes. You know, there was a time when lots of people married their high school sweethearts. But as more and more women started to participate in higher education, as more and more men started to participate in higher education, we've seen the marriage age go up for Americans. Um, because going to college is still a thick marketplace for finding people you could marry. And as more and more women have entered the labor force in professional ways, we we see internet dating sites developing for people who are no longer in college, but but need to find a, a thick marketplace, need to find a, a lot of potential spouses who they can consider, uh, you know, who they can date. So, um, so I think that it, you know, markets are what people do. Uh, it's how we get along with each other. When you're not alone, you're you're interacting with other people. There's a good chance you're engaged in some kind of marketplace, broadly speaking. Thank you for that. That was a great explanation because you're right. It's just the way I've been raised to view markets. And then when you break it down, the marriage market, even that's. So interesting. I mean, I can think back to say college, right? We would maybe call it a dating pool, but essentially it's a, it's a market of people and we just called it the pool. So when we consider each of these interactions or um, different areas in the terms of markets, is there any way us listening to this or who, who read your book can exploit them a little bit. And I don't mean exploit them in a negative way, but can we use our understandings of markets to perhaps give ourselves an edge and speaking specifically of say a marriage market, even though I'm happily married, is there any way to, to use your theory and economics to help us? Well, I think that people naturally use some of their understanding of the market to, to make sensible decisions. So if you lived at the turn of the century, um, you might have married your high school sweetheart. I don't know if you did or not, but today, but, um, but back then you would say to yourself, gee, you know, if I don't, if I don't marry my high school sweetheart, the opportunities to, to meet lots of single women about my age is going to diminish fast because that's when people in my cohort get married. And so many of the desirable spouses will have already been taken if I delay too long, if I wait. But if you're thinking about marriage today and you're in high school, your parents say to you, oh, you're too young. You know, why, what, what's the hurry? Um, wait, you know, you'll go to college, you'll meet other people, you'll get a job, you'll meet other people. And that's all true because the fact that everyone else, many other people are waiting and delaying marriage longer than they did in 1900 means that you can too. So knowing that there will be opportunities in the future, that is anticipating that the market will still be thick in the future, allows you to have more choices about when you might want to get married. And that's true about getting jobs. It's true about, uh, about going to college. It's true about many things. Another thing that I think is very notable here that I, that I want our listeners to understand is, of course, you have a great understanding of matching markets, but uh, one of the things you're really known for is creating a number of markets. And that alone is interesting because you think, okay, how does somebody 
create or at least alter a market. And specifically, I like, you know, how you talk about kidney donations and how you were able to kind of use this idea of matching markets to increase the number of kidney transplants. Could you talk about that? Sure. Well, for, for a start, let's say that, you know, kidney transplants are, are one of the marketplaces, and I use the word broadly, that we really do have to think about markets where prices don't decide who gets what, because it's against the law to buy and sell kidneys for transplant in the United States and almost everywhere in the world. There is a, a monetary market for kidneys in one country, and that's the Islamic Republic of Iran. But everywhere else, it's illegal to buy and sell kidneys, although I should add that there are many black markets around the world. But in the United States, we don't buy and sell kidneys, and we don't have nearly enough kidneys. There are about 100,000 people waiting for a, a donation from a deceased donor, from someone who dies in a way that, that makes his organs donatable. Uh, but we only get about 11,000 deceased donor kidneys a year. But there's another way to get kidneys, and that's from living donors, because healthy people have two kidneys and can stay healthy with just one. And that means if you're healthy, you have the opportunity to donate a kidney to someone you love and save their life if, if they have kidney failure, if they need a kidney. Uh, and so we get about 7,000 living donor kidney donations in the United States right now. But, but it's not a simple matter to donate a kidney. Even if you're healthy enough to give someone a kidney, you might not be able to give a kidney to the person you love because kidneys have to be matched. They have to be compatible. They have to have compatible blood types with the person who's going to get them. And they have to have a lot of other compatibilities because a person's, the patient's immune system might have antibodies that would reject your kidney if it should show up. So you might be healthy enough to give a kidney, but you're incompatible with the person you want to give a kidney to. And I might be in the same situation. And that's where kidney exchange comes up. We can start to make a marketplace where the transactions will be kidney exchanges. No money will change hands, but you could give a kidney to the, to the person I love who I wanted to give a kidney to but can't, and I could give a kidney to the person you love. And through that exchange, two lives would be saved, two couples would be made better off, uh, two patient donor pairs would be made better off. And that's what economics is about. And, and organizing a market like that is something that it makes sense for economists to get involved with and to help our surgical colleagues, who, who actually, of course, are the ones who, who do kidney transplants and who know about all of this, help them organize it so that they can do more of them. And so along with some economist colleagues and some computer science colleagues, uh, I've been able to help our surgical colleagues do more transplants of that. So kidney exchange is now a standard form of transplantation in the United States. All right, guys, time to take a quick break. And I want to tell you a true story that highlights what I love about one of our sponsors this week, Animoto. So as many of you know, my wife is a kindergarten teacher. And being the overachiever that she is, at the end of every year, she puts together a nice little video slideshow combination with music. And she gives it to the parents and it shows them how their kid progressed throughout the year. Well, in the past, she's used some kind of crappy Windows platform. I don't know. It was on her old PC who has a PC anymore anyways, but she'd been using that forever. So she really knew how to use it. She'd spent hours kind of mastering it. Well, she no longer has that computer. So she came to me and said, Hey, Chris, is there anything I can use? That's easy. I don't have a lot of time, but I want to make it look good. 
And seriously, it just so turns out that Animoto has been sponsoring the show. I became aware of their platform. So I sent her to animoto.com slash smart people. So she got a 14 day free trial. You can too. And I was busy. I said, look, I'm not going to show you how to do it. You're smart. Figure it out. She is not techie at all. She just got a smartphone like a couple of months ago. So anyway, she gives it a shot and no joke. I come downstairs like an hour later and she's put together this killer video presentation slideshow mixed with music and transitions. The music is free. It comes with the subscription and with literally a click of a button, you can publish it to different platforms. She used YouTube, made it a private link. So that's just one example of how you can make amazing video using Animoto without having to know video editing software. Animoto is a drag and drop video builder that gives you everything you need built right in it to produce professional videos in minutes. Why not give it a try? As I mentioned, visit Animoto, that's A-N-I-M-O-T-O, Animoto.com slash smart people and check out a free 14 day trial. Then when you love it and you know you want to make all your videos on it in the future, use the promo code smart people and get 15% off an annual pro subscription. All right, let's get back to our interview. And because it's such not only a relevant topic to or a relevant example of what we're talking about, but it's also real world and it's something you created. I'm interested in some of the things behind the scenes. My first question is, what resistance did you run into in trying to do this, if any? I would imagine, you know, when you're dealing with something as, you know, life or death as organs, there are people who don't want to upset the status quo. Did you run into that? Well, we did. Um, First, many kidney surgeons and other physicians don't didn't automatically regard economists as fellow members of the helping professions. So it took us a while to find economists who, uh, to find surgeons who would talk to us. So the first paper I wrote on kidney exchange was with my economist colleagues, Typhoon Sunmez and Utko Unver. And we sent it to all the kidney surgeons we could think of. And only one wrote back. And that was Frank Delmonico, who was the head of the New England Organ Bank and a, a famous surgeon in uh, at Harvard Medical School. And he came and talked to us, and, and we helped him form the New England Program for Kidney Exchange. And since then, there have been many kidney exchange programs formed. And once once he started getting involved, it became much easier to talk to, to other surgeons. But of course, kidney care is a giant business. It's a $50 billion a year business in the United States. So of course, there are lots of institutions and interests and careers and ways of looking at things that were well established and that it's taken some time to to make inroads on. But but because of the really interesting group of surgeons who got interested in this, uh, it has in fact been a successful program in the United States. Now, that being said, I could tell you about victory after victory in a war that we're losing. that As I said, there are 100,000 people waiting for kidneys. So we haven't solved the problem of kidney disease by any means. But we've made more transplants possible. Thousands more transplants have become possible than would have without kidney exchange. Well, do you think that the, as you mentioned, there's an abundance of people suffering from kidney disease. Is that a function or is that a, a problem that could be solved by more efficient markets? Like if, if your marketplace, the one you created was more efficient, could we, could we fix that? Or is it simply uh, we don't have the right tools to do so? Well, if we could get more 
if we, if we could get the word out more, if we could get more patient donor payers enrolled in kidney exchange, we could get more transplants. But there are so many more people needing transplants than there are organs available mm. that we have to work on other ways of increasing the number of organs, on other ways of reducing the number of people who need transplants. And eventually, in the long term, you know, your grandchildren will be astonished at how primitive medicine transplantation is. They'll say to you, so tell me again, Grandpa, you used to cut the kidney out of one person and sew it into a sick person, and that was modern medicine. And you'll have to tell them, yes, that, that was modern medicine. And hopefully by the time they're grown, your grandchildren, uh, there'll be better ways of curing kidney disease and of preventing it. But everyone who needs a kidney today will be dead by then. So, mm -hmm. so we, have to, we have a responsibility for taking care of the people who, who are ill now. And that's going to have to be a multi-pronged approach. We have to get more transplants. That's what kidney exchange does. It gets more organs into, makes them available for transplantation. We have to do more on that. We, it would be good to get more deceased donor organs, but there's a limit to how many of those you can get. Um, there's a lot of discussion about whether it should be legal to, to give incentives for donation, to compensate donors, for instance, to, to pay donors. And that's a, a highly controversial subject. As I said, it's against the law everywhere in the world. Uh, and transactions like that transactions that some people would like to engage in. Some people would like to buy a kidney to save their lives, and other, other people might be willing to sell them a kidney. And um, as I said, there's a legal market in Iran. But transactions that some people would like to do and other people don't want them to do, even though they're not directly involved, are what I call repugnant transactions. And I've spent a lot of time trying to understand repugnant transactions because when you see something that's against the law everywhere in the world, you're, it would be presumptuous to think you understand it well, if you, if, even if you think it's a bad idea. So uh, it turns out when you look into repugnant transactions, there are quite a, quite a few of them, and uh, many of them have been very important over the course of history. For instance, in the Middle Ages, it was repugnant to charge interest on loans, but we would hardly have the global capitalist economy that we have today if we didn't have a market for capital. Hmm. On the other hand, here in the United States, we used to sell slaves. We used to allow people to buy passage across the Atlantic Ocean by, by uh, becoming indentured servants, you know, being temporary slaves. And we don't allow that anymore. So it's not true that old repugnances inevitably fade away as we get more modern. Sometimes things that weren't so repugnant become repugnant. So, so there's something important to understand there because markets and the kind of markets we allow to exist require social support. And I think that we don't understand yet enough about repugnant transactions and how they constrain markets and which transactions we allow and which we don't. And we're, we see those changing, of course, all the time. Uh, uh, I think a prototypical repugnant transaction in the sense of it's a transaction that some people want to do and other people don't want them to is same-sex marriage. In the last 10 or 11 years in the United States, we've gone from no states allowing same-sex marriage to perhaps at the end of this year, all American states will allow it. And that's a repugnant transaction in the sense that some people want to marry each other and other people don't want them to. And it's one that divides Americans. Not every state allows it yet. And, and there's been some real contention, but we're seeing very rapid change in when you think about it, you know, a decade, a decade and a half is is quite fast when you think for how many millennia uh, 
same-sex marriage was repugnant. So repugnancies can change, but they're different in different places. Uh, so it's hard to make a model that, that it's, it's not as if all human beings find the same things repugnant. Is there anything you see as an economist that could be considered a repugnant market that shouldn't be at this moment? You know, when I, when I listen to you talk about the, uh, it was repugnant to charge interest on loans back then, right? Yeah. You would like to think <laughs> if you were in during that time, you'd be like, guys, this is crazy. Let's do it in the same way. And I don't want to get into a lot of controversial issues, but same sex marriage, as you mentioned, it's sweeping across the, the nation and will be in all 50 states relatively soon. I mean, even five years ago, I'm like, come on, this this is obvious. Like we should have this. Do you see any now as an economist that really bug you? Well, I imagine that. I mean, let, let's just look at some repugnant transactions. Uh, lots of drugs are illegal. And of course, in the United States, we had prohibition against alcohol. And, and you know, when you make a market illegal, it doesn't make the market go away. It just makes the legal markets go away. Uh, you know, so black markets spring up. So we had a constitutional amendment that, you know, saying that we find the sale of alcohol repugnant. Then we had another constitutional amendment that said, never mind, you know, it, it causes lots of crime. And it turns out Americans like to drink more than we imagined they do. Uh, you know, it's not working. Let's let's uh, let's stop that. So one of the things we're seeing now is that the criminalization of marijuana consumption seems to be ebbing right there. You can you can get medical marijuana in several states and you can now get recreational marijuana in uh, Colorado. And I I think in Oregon. Um, so that looks like the thin edge of the wedge. I bet that they're not going to have terrible effects in Colorado and that after a while, Coloradans will come to think of marijuana somewhat the way they think of alcohol. That is, you can, you can mess yourself up by using it badly, but that maybe we shouldn't have a big criminal justice system trying to give you advice on that. You know, we, we should have laws that stop minors from drinking and maybe from using marijuana. And, and we should have laws against operating automobiles and heavy machinery while you're under the influence. Uh, but maybe with laws like that, rather than outright criminalization, uh, Coloradans will find that, that legalizing marijuana hasn't damaged them very much. And if they do, then I imagine that we might see more of that in the United States. So, that, so there's an example. That's a great example. There's another real life situation that you discuss in the book that I find fascinating. You talk about college admissions and how that is obviously we discussed it earlier, a, a matching market, but there are again, things you can do to improve your chances of being admitted uh, to a college of your liking. One of them being actually visit the college and do something as simple as, you know, sign the, um, the, the guest book. Because what I want to do is have people leave listening to this interview, understanding the idea of matching markets and perhaps utilizing it better in their life. How can we use this theory, this idea even further, say, in the college admissions process to up our chances? Well, college admissions is what I call in the book a congested market. It's a market where lots of students are applying to lots of colleges. So, so each college, get many colleges, get, get far more applications than they can carefully consider. They have to do some initial sorting and then more serious sorting and then more serious sorting still. And similarly, there are many, many colleges, many more than applicants, than, than high school graduates can apply to. So 
both sides of the market have, when a market's congested, can't fully consider every possible transaction. And as a result, they have to do some signaling, signaling of two sorts. One is signaling that says, I'm a desirable person to match with, or I'm a desirable institution to match with. So the way you send the signal that you're a desirable person to admit to college, of course, is you study hard and you do well in high school and you do well on your standardized exams. That's a signal that says, I'm a talented person, you should look at me. But the most elite colleges can look only at that. They don't have to worry about whether you're interested in them. When Harvard admits students, the students may not come, but Harvard's yield is very high. So Harvard is pretty safe in assuming that everyone who they admit will at least consider coming. But that's not true for every college. I used, before I I now teach at Stanford. I used to teach at Harvard. Before that, I taught at the University of Pittsburgh and the University of Illinois. Pittsburgh and Illinois are fine universities. They're, they're great American universities, but they're not in the elite uh, strata that, that um, Harvard and Stanford find themselves. So admissions officers at Illinois and at Pitt have to think not just how much do we like this student, but what are our chances of getting him? Is this a student who, if we admitted him and and offered him financial aid, at, meaning maybe we wouldn't offer someone else financial aid, is he someone who would likely come? And that's where sending a signal like going on a campus visit indicates that you didn't just add one more application to have an even dozen when you were applying to college, but this is a college that, that you actually had some interest in. You, you came and looked. Um, and that's particularly important nowadays that it's pretty easy to apply to many colleges. It's good that it isn't hard to apply to colleges. The, the uh, um, Things like the Common App make it easy to apply to colleges and then add just one more if you're, if you're not sure of how many you want to apply to. But the fact that you can add just one more means the fact that you've applied to some college is not by itself a strong indication of how interested you are. And so there are lots of ways to show that you are interested. And if you're applying to a college that's going to care about this, and, and except for the most elite colleges, colleges have to care about that, um, then you can do that. You can, you can, in your essays, indicate that you know something about the college and that you've looked at their website or that you know people who have graduated from there. Uh, you can visit, you can um, get letters, your, your, the people who write your letters of reference to write about your interest in it. Those are things that, that matter to admissions officers because a college is, it's a community of scholars, but it's also something like a hotel. It has to uh, try to fill its capacity, but not overfill it or underfill it. So that, you know, the college has some idea of how many freshmen it can admit and it pays for it to concentrate on the students who it likes and who also like it. And now a quick word from one of our sponsors. You know how much we love learning here at Smart People Podcast. And that's why we're so excited to have lynda.com as one of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by lynda.com, the online learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. For a free 10-day trial, visit lynda.com slash smart people. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash smart people. lynda.com is for problem solvers, for the curious, for people who want to make things happen. Simply put, lynda.com is for you. Maybe you want to master Excel learn negotiation tactics, build a website, or boost your Photoshop skills. Go to lynda.com and feed your curious mind. lynda.com offers so many courses, but some of the courses I recommend are weekly office workshop, learning to be assertive, 
and bootstrapping your business. I've been taking multiple lynda.com courses on web development, and what I love about it is I get to learn something new every single day and actually see what I'm building. I absolutely love it. With a lynda.com membership, you can watch and learn from top experts who are passionate about teaching. You can browse each course transcript to follow along or search for an answer and skip to the point that is in the video. You can also download tutorials and watch them on the go, including access on your iOS or Android device. How awesome is that? Your lynda.com membership will give you unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics, all for one flat rate. Whether you're looking to become an industry expert, you're passionate about a hobby, or you just want to learn something new, I want you to visit lynda.com slash smart people and sign up for your free 10-day trial. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash smart people. And now back to the show. The idea of it being a congested market. I think we can now, and again, the reason I love that example, we can now take that idea and look at it next time we're in a situation where perhaps um, that's the case. And I, I can liken it back to you go to a bar that's, you know, three to one guy girl ratio. That's a congested market. So you better do something to up your chances. <laughs> That's right. Also, think about think about that. Um, when you're courting, you try to indicate not just that that you're desirable, but that you're interested in the person you're courting, your person you're dating. And if you're even on a dating site before you've met, if you spend time looking carefully at people's profiles, you can write more interesting emails that will show that you spent time doing that and that you might be someone who's interested. You know, uh, some colleagues of mine, uh, Muriel Needley and Sue Lee, uh, conducted an experiment on a dating site where they did something like an intervention that we've done in the labor market for, for economists, but they did this on a dating site. Um, the trouble, one trouble with dating sites is that women with attractive pictures get more emails than they can easily answer. And Consequently, they don't answer them all, and, and men who aren't getting their emails answered might respond by, by sending emails to more women, and that, makes the, that means their emails will become more superficial, and so less and less information is getting transmitted. And what Muriel and Sue did in this dating site is they, they gave to everyone two virtual roses, and what that meant was you could send emails to as many people as you wanted, but in a given, I forget whether it was a day or a week, uh, in, in a given day, you could only send two emails that had roses attached to them. And so what they found is that people who received emails that had roses attached to them paid more attention to them. They understood that this email wasn't cheap talk. This email, someone had spent some thought and decided to send a rose to you and that you should look at the email and look at their profile and, and figure out why they had thought it was worthwhile sending you a rose. And they found a lot higher connection rate among emails that went with roses than those that didn't. That's and that's the kind of signal that you send by signing the, the guest book when, when you visit a campus admissions office. Right. You're giving them a rose. I love it. Let's talk about dysfunctional markets. I mean, I think we have a general idea of what a dysfunctional market could be just from the terminology, but what's a good example of that currently? Well, if, if someone is graduating from a fancy law school in the United States now, one of the fanciest jobs they can have is to be a, a law clerk for an appellate judge, so, so for a, a judge of an appeals court. And that market is pretty dysfunctional right now because you graduate from law school after three years of school and you take this job after your third year. 
But those jobs are being agreed upon at the beginning of the second year of law school. So someone who is eventually going to assist an appellate court judge will get hired by that judge near the beginning of his second year of law school, more almost two years in advance of, uh, of when he'll start work. And he won't have an opportunity to consider lots of judges because the judges will make exploding offers. They'll say, I'm offering you my clerkship, and then you... The polite answer is, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Not, I'd like to wait and have a couple of more interviews, which will happen in the in the coming weeks. So that's a market that, that doesn't work very well for either the judges or the clerks, because the clerks don't have an opportunity to consider multiple offers. And the judges have to hire their, their clerks while at the beginning of their second year of law school, which means when they've only completed one year of law school, one out of three. So the judges, of course, often have tried to move the hiring later, but it's very hard to get judges to obey rules. There's, the judges are laws unto themselves, and um, they don't tend to follow the rules, even the rules that they make for themselves about, about how to organize their market. <laughs> I wonder if the fact that they don't follow their own rules, is that a little bit of a, uh, a God complex? I don't know, but it's happened in other markets as well. I've been involved in helping to organize the market for New American Doctors, which is now organized through a centralized clearinghouse and has been since the early 1950s. But that that followed 50 years of unraveling in this way. In the 1940s, doctors were being hired two years before they graduated from medical school. Wow. So now, now that doesn't you know, doctors and judges, that doesn't rule out a God complex. <laughs> I was going to say those two, if you could define any. While I have a Nobel Prize winner in economics on, I have to ask you about, you know, the financial markets. Let's talk about the 99%, 1% thing as, as I just remind, or I just remember this thinking about the God complex. To somebody such as myself, you know, middle class at best, you do want to look at the 1% and place blame. And you want to look at, I just read a study that said the top 25 hedge fund managers in the, in the country make more than all of the kindergarten teachers combined. And that just hurts because they're, I don't believe they're providing the value to, um, to earn that much. And so I would think of that as a dysfunctional market. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that's, uh, a good intuition. Um, let's, let's take a moment to distinguish what you said from what someone else might have said, which is that income inequality by itself is something that we don't like. And I think that's less true. I think, I think focusing on, on hedge fund managers, as you did, um, makes a lot of sense. But because I think that you probably don't feel the same way about Bill Gates's wealth exactly. or, or J.K. Rowling, who wrote the Harry Potter series, which mm -hmm. you will read aloud to your child in, in days to come, in years <laughs> to come. Um, I read a number of those volumes out loud, oh, wow. uh, which is great. I mean, it's just wonderful, wonderful. So, so we certainly don't resent that she sold a lot of copies of her book and, and is a wealthy woman. Absolutely. Um, but what you are worried about with hedge fund managers is that they are somehow handling lots of money and some of it is just sticking to their hands and that that's a sign that that we're spending too much effort on moving money around in ways that might not be productive for society. And I think that might be true. And one of the places where it's true that I do talk about in the book has to do with high-speed trading. So financial markets are very 
old and they they used to be in open pits with people you know shouting orders at each other and they work on what's called a continuous double auction when someone makes an offer to buy or sell the first person who wants to accept that offer can have it but nevertheless when you work on human speeds you have to compete on price as well as on speed but one of the things that's happened now is that there's very very high speed communication between the markets in New York and in Chicago so one of the things you can do is you can if you're a very high speed trader if you if you are a computerized algorithmic trader who has access to the fastest communication lines that that work in milliseconds between the New York Stock Exchange say and the Chicago Mercantile Exchange is you can look for changes in one market and and in milliseconds make trades on the other market before the news has arrived for people who have slightly slower lines mm. right so the fastest communication now goes around 8 milliseconds between uh, the New York Stock Exchange and uh, Chicago Mercantile Exchange it takes you well over 100 milliseconds to blink your eyes so we're talking about a speed that's beyond human speed but what it does is it allows people who can be very fast to see the price move on one market and buy at the old price on the other market for example what that means is people making offers have to be more cautious in their offers for fear that their stale offers will be the ones that are taken and that interferes a little bit with the way the markets work it it we'd like to have people competing on price rather than on speed so there have been some proposals that say now that computers are so fast so much faster than human beings maybe we should very slightly slow down the markets so that people will once again have to compete on speed on on price rather than on speed and when you talk about hedge fund managers a little bit that's what you're talking about you're saying we think that when when people compete to buy and sell on price they're providing some service to the other people in the market when they're competing on speed they're a little bit preying on the market and not producing public goods and so but but of course if you can make a lot of money by doing that then a lot of people will do it and these lines that go between New York Stock Exchange and Chicago Mercantile Exchange, billions of dollars are spent a year on on trying to have the fastest lines. And that's sort of socially wasteful spending. So um, so, so there are people thinking about revising that. My, my student, Eric Budish, who is now a professor at the University of Chicago, has been at the forefront of that, along with uh, Peter Crampton, an auction theorist. And they've talked about how, supposing instead of running the markets every millisecond, you ran them every second. Every You allowed offers to accumulate and then allowed supply to equal demand, set a price at which supply equal demand every second. That would be fast enough to account for any news on a human scale, but it would be slow enough so that traders would have to compete on price and not on speed because when you do it once a second, everyone can get the everyone who's a computerized professional trader can get the news in a second, even though not everyone can get it in eight milliseconds. Right. And that seems, correct me if I'm wrong, that seems like one of those repugnant uh, ideas or something. Is that, well, is that a good it, use of that? It could become repugnant. That is, there are some kinds of trades going on that that some people are doing that we might not like them to do. And then I, I had another question for you, uh, a little bit off the topic as well. So feel free to answer in whatever way you see fit. But you mentioned you taught at Illinois and Pitt and then Harvard now on to Stanford. So again, all great schools, but clearly we all know Harvard and Stanford are in a league of their own. I'm curious, and I've never asked this question of any professor that we've had on, 
did you see or do you see a big difference in the student body between, say, the likes of Illinois and Pitt versus Harvard and Stanford? Well, the distributions are different, but the best students at Illinois and Pittsburgh would fit very comfortably in at Harvard and Stanford. Mm. Um, but there are more students like that at Harvard and Stanford than there are at Illinois and Pitt. Do you notice it being work ethic and determination or kind of pure genius? <laughs> so very little is pure genius. Mm -hmm. But it's also not just work ethic. So one of the things, you see, schools, you know, communities are also markets in a way. One of the things about Harvard and Stanford is if you go to study there, you are subject to stiffer competition than if you go to Pitt or Illinois. Mm -hmm. So my best students, as I said, my best students at Pitt, Illinois, would have thrived at Harvard and Stanford. But they would have done more if they were at Harvard or Stanford mm -hmm. than if they were at Illinois and Pitt. Because at Illinois and Pitt, they were the best in their classes and, and everyone sort of relaxed at that point. You know, what could you say to them except to congratulate them on how well <laughs> they were doing? Uh, but to do that, to be the best in your class at Harvard, you have to work a lot harder. And so they would have worked a lot harder. Hmm. So I think that for the best students, it's, it's good to study among other very highly talented students. Gotcha. Well, Al, again, your book, Who Gets What and Why, fantastic book, as you mentioned, kind of a general interest book taking complicated topics, utilizing the description of matching markets and markets in general to really bring it home so that everyone can pick out a lot of things. I really appreciate you being on the show. For those that are just all about this, obviously, we will link to your book um, at smartpeoplepodcast.com. Is there anywhere else that people can find you? Do you write other uh, other places? Do you have you know? Do you keep update on social social media? I have a blog called uh, Market Design. The blog is called Market Design. I guess the best thing to do is just search for it on Google. Okay. Uh, but I try to link to news stories and things like that pretty much every day that that make me think about market design. That's fantastic. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it, and uh, I learned a lot. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, and I'll look forward to uh, to seeing this appear. Send me uh, send me a link. I will does. be sure to to send that to you, and it'll be within the next, I'd say, two weeks, two to three weeks. Wonderful! I'll look forward to it. All right, thanks so much. Thank you. All bye right, bye. Bye bye. Welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode with Alvin Roth. You can pick up his book, "Who Gets What and Why: The New Economics of Matchmaking and Marketing Design." on Amazon and at your local bookstore. And as always, if you do decide to purchase it through Amazon, please use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. It's one of the easiest ways to support the show and it comes at no cost to you. If you're looking for another easy way to support the show, please head over to iTunes and Stitcher and leave a rating and review over there that truly does help out the show so thank you so much in advance if you want to reach out to the show please shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or fire off a message at smartpeoplepod on twitter please remember we've got a survey out there to help us find the best advertisers for this show so if you have a few minutes head over to podsurvey.com slash smart fill out the survey and let us know what type of products you guys are looking for. Thank you again for checking out the show. Stay tuned. We've got some great episodes coming up. And we will see you guys next week. <laughs>